So my guest today is Louis Fernandez, and Louis has been described by colleagues as follows. A true leader is what comes to mind when I think of Louis. Here's another one. His business savvy is complemented by his creative acumen, worldliness, and master of sales and sales operations. Here's a third. One of the most forward-thinking leaders I've had the pleasure to work with. He goes on. Louis, Consta Louis constantly demonstrated a passion and commitment to continuous innovation and challenging the status quo. And I'm not done. He has a great leadership style, says someone else. I loved his sense of humor. Louis is courageous, sharp, and attentive leader. He has a big personality and is a man of character. Louis Fernandez, you're very welcome to the podcast. Hi, Paul. Thank you very much for having me along today. My pleasure. My pleasure, Louis. Louis, um, I'm, I'm, your, your accent and your name are in my head. I, I, your accent is English. Your name is mm. not... not could you tell me a little bit about yeah. your, your your backstory, please? So it's a bit complicated. So my, my father's actually Portuguese. Uh, my mother is German and I have spent most of my life being quite confused about that. But um, it's 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 actually a good combination because, uh, you know, I have spent a lot of time living overseas, actually. And I've been fortunate enough to grow up with a lot of different influences, whether that's been you know, Portuguese or German, or I spent a lot of time in Austria, spent a lot of time living in France, um, even spent a couple of years living in Turkey, which was an amazing experience. And, you know, I think it just creates for, or it sort of certainly creates um, a very different view of the world than maybe somebody who's been in one place all the time. And I'm really grateful for that because it's, it's been sure. a great experience. How much of that was under the age of 18? Um, actually not that much. Um, I spent a bit of time overseas when I was under 18, but actually most of it's been latterly. Um, I, um, well, funny enough, I ended up with a, a Portuguese girlfriend for quite a while and that took me overseas for quite a bit. But, um, after that I was actually working, living and working firstly in the French Alps. Um, I spent a long time, um, working in the travel industry. Uh, and um, was running sort of uh, ski operations for quite a long time. Then also in the med, uh, spent a lot of time sailing, um, and it was sort of was ski season, sailing seasons across various different countries, and that's what took me all over the place, which was great. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that as well. You've got your sailing qualifications. I saw that on LinkedIn. Um, but I wanted to ask you in terms of where you grew up, talk to me about that and what that was like. Yeah, for the most part, it was actually uh, in the UK and around London. And it was it was very strange because um, I grew up in the 70s um, and it was an interesting time because, you know, having a German mother particularly was uh, a, a bit of a challenge um, in that. I remember even when I turned up at primary school, you know, um, the teachers turned around to my mother I said, ah, oh, Mrs. Fernandez, um, you do realise that Louis does speak English with a German accent, so I had to have that beaten out of me at an early stage. Uh, so <laughs> it was it was one of these things. And it's kind of weird because, I mean, we talk about things like diversity and culture and ethnicity quite a lot. Um, back in the 70s, it was very weird being, you know, having the skin colour that I have, but yeah. still getting quite a lot of abuse, actually, um, for having foreign parents. And that, that was reasonably standard at the time. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm just wondering, even if you put that in today's context, 
does that drive for inclusion diversity does does it does it overcome the 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 I'm thinking, you know, children in playgrounds can be cruel. Yeah. And, and they'll pick up on any difference. It doesn't make a difference. You could be from down the road, but if everybody else is from here, like if you had, if you had come from Manchester and, remo- and moved mm-hmm. to London, that in itself could be a, could be a thing that Absolutely. people pick up on. And so I often wonder, are they being cruel about you, you or one because of actually where you came from or just because you're different? It's because you're different. It always is. And I think one of the things that I'd learned to do at a very early age was just be resilient about those kind of things. Because, you know, you've got two choices. You can either react or you can just let it be water off a duck's back. Um, And I I tended to choose the latter. Um, And actually, it's also made for a very different interaction than with colleagues now. Because, I mean, I I sort of work with colleagues from across uh, EMEA. Um, and actually the, the diversity in terms of cultural diversity that we have in the team, you know, just different backgrounds, different um, uh, places that people have lived and worked and so on and so forth. It, it is really interesting to me because I, I see very different aspects of people and I'm, I'm quite used to being in those kind of environments. And I think it, it, for me, that's certainly um, uh, an advantage, especially when you're having to deal with people from you know, like I say, those different backgrounds, both in terms of colleagues and in terms of clients as well. So it really works in my favour, I think. Yeah. And I'm going to say I'm going to say something, and I don't want it to be misconstrued, so I'm putting that out there, is, but you mentioned the fact that it, it actually, your, your, your own character traits were developed as a result. Yeah. And those character traits, I'm sure, you, you can tell me yourself, have put you in good, you know, They've been there for you when you needed them. And uh, I guess I'm asking the question, I'm not suggesting that people should ever be mean or unkind to anybody. But I'm wondering, do in hindsight, if you were to look at the trade-offs in terms of what happened to you versus what it did for you? Yeah, I mean... Would you change I, anything? You, you know, it, I think it depends on your outlook on life as much as anything else. You know, some people look at it half, glass half full. Some look at it glass half empty. I'm kind of a half full guy. So, you know, from that point of view, it's about taking those experiences and adapting them to your own, you know, paradigm. And I've been really fortunate that actually for me, it's worked out really, really well. Um, I've I've got, um, as, as a consequence of that, I've, I've got a really close-knit team, right? And I, and I think they you know, they sort of respect and understand that I've, I've got a slightly different lens on things. And I think looking at things through different lenses actually really helps you as a leader as much as anything else. And I think the other thing as well that I've spoken about already is resilience. Mm. I think one of the things you need as a leader is, is a lot of resilience because there are going to be challenges in your career, in your professional life, in your personal yeah. life. And it's it's how you cope with those that determines how, you know, you, you come out the other end. And I think that yeah. that's a, a really important part. Yeah, no, it is. And the reason why I picked up on that was it kind of gelled with my own. I was quite fat as a kid and I got called names. Mm. And at the time they weren't nice. But I remember my mother saying to me, sticks and stones, kind of like basically, you know, either lose the weight or suck, you know, suck it up. Um, and I, I think that has helped in some respects. Mm. 
I, I don't know. I, I, I guess, I guess uh, there, there is a difference. There is definitely a difference. But um, t tell me a little bit about from then, from growing up in London to early professional life, what yeah. that transition was like. So it's kind of interesting. So I, I went into industry at the age of 18 um, and I effectively, uh, you know, this was this was sort of 1988 we're talking about. So quite a while ago. Um, yeah, I can just about remember it. Yeah, no, no. Um, and I, I ended up working for NatWest Bank. Um, and this was just almost what you would call an apprenticeship scheme um, where you learned about banking, you learned about industry, um, had day release uh, to go to college and, and study at the same time. So not a university education at all. But um, and that was really, really useful because a lot of friends of mine at the time were in university and came out uh, what I think of as the last really quite serious recession. I mean, I'm not I'm talking about sort of 93, 94 ERM yes, uh, disaster interest rates at 16 percent. We think, you know, we've got inflation now. Right. Um, people genuinely losing houses because uh, they couldn't afford the payments on them. Mm. And it was it was horrible. And a lot of friends came out of university at that time, couldn't get jobs. Yeah, I was already established in a career and that, that was quite a, an interesting thing because I learned a lot about sales and marketing at that point. Because mm. um, where I went with the, the apprenticeship was very much down the sales and marketing route. Um, and, and in those days, because it was a B2C environment, because I was in you know retail banking, it was sales and marketing, not sales or marketing. Um, and, and that was quite interesting because I think I learned a lot from it. I also learned a lot about things like finance, uh, you know, a general framework around the law and accounting and stuff like that. And all that stuff that I learned then, I think, has stood me in amazing stead throughout my career. So it, it, was, it was really, really good and, again, really formative for me. I want to talk about that because I think what you've mentioned there is a, it's a form of apprenticeship. Yeah. It's an apprenticeship model. And I want to... I'll talk about that. The other thing I wanted to pick up on, because I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten about the early '90s and the 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 European um, exchange rate mechanism. Yes, yes, and uh, there was late '80s as well, because I remember back mm. in London, I spent some time in London, and there was people literally putting their front door keys back through the doors of the building societies and the banks. Yeah, that happened twice within the space of six, five, six, seven years. Yeah, that that, that people forget that like that's that's a pretty serious step. When you're walking away from your home like that and putting mm -hmm. the keys back through the letterbox and basically then living with that debt because it follows you around. Absolutely. Um, it certainly does build resilience. If, and if you've been exposed to it as well, I think you get an appreciation of and perspective on life that you yeah. know, even if it hasn't happened to you, you see it happening to others. You kind of realize that life is about more than just uh, kind of short term gain as we often go down. But the, the apprenticeship model has always interested me on. And I think... My own perspective on it is just of, of late looking at the cost of university. Mm. Crazy in the States, but even in the UK, because again, when I spent time in the UK, university was free. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's not anymore. Well, it was never free, I guess, but it was free at the point of entry. Yeah. And um, now people are saddled with debt. And when you consider that with, what you're talking about here is the, the apprenticeship model is you're getting the experience and you're getting the education, and you're getting some money. Mm -hmm. Any ideas why we don't do more of it? It to me is a no-brainer. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know, but I, I know that there are some industries where it still happens. So we've got a very good friend and her daughter has just gone into um, an apprenticeship in architecture, for example, mm. where she's, you know, again, at the age of 18, she's just finished college. She's actually studying one day a week. Um, she's working in the um, practice the other four days a week and, and learning on the job at the same time and getting paid. And I think it's a really, really strong way forward because you get to see how different departments work and it gives you a very broad and rounded, you know, business education. And I, and I think that's invaluable. Um, and I'd love to see a bit more of it. I mean, we, yeah. we, we're just in the process here at Uber all of instigating uh, you know, a, a sort of sales university, sales academy, whereby we're bringing people in at a very junior level, sort of, you know, entry level BDR and taking them through that. Um, and that's something I'm quite passionate about, you know, making sure that we, we, we do that because uh, there's the old adage about, you know, um, uh, a senior manager turning around to somebody and saying, you know, what happens if we, uh, if we don't train people up and they, they're, they're unable to, to do the job. Um, and it's like, you know, the counter argument then is, well, what happens if we train them up and they leave? And that's always been that sort of dichotomy. And I think actually the best thing you can do for people is, you know, give them the opportunities. And if you do a good job of training them and giving those, them, those career opportunities, then you know what, it reaps its own rewards. And if people are successful as a result of it, they will stick with you. Yeah. And, and I think in, in today's environment where... Recruitment particularly is so tough right now. I mean, you know, uh, it, it's very much a, a candidate market. Um, so what are the points of differentiation between employer A and employer B and employer C? A lot of people will think it might be about the product or the service that they offer, but that only goes so far. And I think increasingly it's the ethos of the organisation and actually the uh, attitude to how you're going to develop me as an individual. What, what, you know, as well as what am I going to be expected to do? So I think that that trade off works quite well now. And, I'm, and it's something, like I say, I'm, I'm very keen to ensure we do here at Uberall. Yeah. And they do stay longer. There's no question about it. I yeah. saw an organization I was working with. And I think there was like 14 months was the average turnaround on a BDR. And that extended to over two years because they had a two year program, a two year curriculum. And mm. people would, you know, stick it to the end. And I think if they're going to grow with you, they're going to stick with you a lot longer. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. It, it's it's interesting because it's a model that, you know, it's kind of been forgotten about a little bit. But IBM used to do a great job of their sales academy, you know, and same with Xerox and all these kind of guys. And I think in sales, as we've moved out of what are seen as the, the very um, slow-moving behemoths of, of IT, as SaaS, we're, we're a little bit faster around things. But we've also forgotten a little bit about how to do those kind of things. And I think there's an opportunity now for those of us that are in SaaS businesses to maybe bring some of those um, systems, processes, infrastructures uh, from our own experience to bear now that actually benefit our colleagues and uh, our co-workers. Have you any insight on why we used to do it and don't do it anymore? Not you, you're doing it, but in general, in industry. Actually, I think it's successive government policy, certainly in the UK, um, that, that's determined that, you know, there's been a drive to get everybody into universities. Um, and as a consequence of which, we end up with a lot of people doing degrees that they saddle up a lot of debt, as you've already alluded to. And then unfortunately, don't have anything to, to show for it necessarily at the end of it, because they can't necessarily get into the job. 
that they want because everybody wants five years of experience. Mm. So it's a sort of catch-22 situation. Um, and I think that if employers had more of a uh, an input into the kind of courses and did more of the day release thing, uh, that would actually benefit, you know, the employer, mm. the economy at large, and, you know, I, I think industry generally. Uh, we always talk about a lack of skills necessarily in, in certain industries or a lack of experience. It's a, it's a good way around it by investing there. But I appreciate not every company can afford to do it and, it, and it is a big undertaking. But I think the more we can strive towards it, the better. How did you get them from banking into sales? So, as I sort of alluded to, um, I, I started in 88, and by the time we were in sort of 93, 94 territory, things were not great um, because of ERM. Um, and at NatWest particularly, there were some, um, let's say, equally not great strategic decisions that the leadership had taken that had basically put us in a position whereby, you know, it, it wasn't all roses and light. And they basically offered everyone uh, voluntary redundancy packages. And I thought, great, fantastic opportunity take the money and run and that's what I did um, I, I took a voluntary redundancy package and then thought you know what I quite enjoy my skiing I'm going to go out to the French Alps take myself off there and be a ski bum for a season um, that didn't quite work out because what ended up happening was I, I ended up turning up uh, in a ski resort um, managed to get a job uh, as an EPH which is an extra pair of hands, you know, really glamorous. Yeah. Um, and that job also lasted for then about two weeks uh, because what happened was the the young lady they'd employed to be the resort manager just simply failed to sh show up. At which point they turned around and went, mm, "You speak about seven words of French. Uh, you've done some. You've done a proper job before, and you've you've vaguely got lots of management experience. You'll do." Uh, so went from ski bum to EPH to resort manager in the space of a month, which was which was wow. an interesting evolution. And although I'd only intended to be out there for one season, I ended up doing eight years of pretty much back to back seasons. Mm. Skiing or sailing, if you had to pick one, which why? Difficult one. Uh, my knees now would say sailing because they're shot. Um, but back in the day, I probably would have gone for skiing. Is it hard on your knees, or was that? Oh God, my, I've had um, I've had three operations on my left, three operations on my right. I've had more breaks than you can shake a stick at, and it's it. I, I can feel it now. And is is that from skiing? Oh yeah, yeah all of it is from skiing. Wow. Do, basically doing stupid things when uh, I probably should have known better. Well, I guess what's it say that you have to break omelettes to make an egg, don't you? <laughs> That's right. And I think it's also it also speaks a little bit to, and again, it's all part of the evolution of the individual because yeah. it, it's part of my competitive spirit. You know, it's only because I, I, I want to win or I want to do something that goes beyond or pushes the boundary. And, and it's interesting because I talk about this because I used to teach both of these things as well. Um, and when you're teaching, you talk about things like comfort, stretch and panic. So, you know, people that stay in the comfort zone tend not to push any boundaries. If you can push people out of their comfort zone to stretch, actually their comfort zone expands. And that's in some respects what you also want to do when you're, you're working with individuals in this kind of a sales environment. You put them into a, a situation that's slightly outside of their comfort zone, but with guardrails and support. 
Uh, and then they learn. Uh, and then the next time, it's not quite so scary. You know, the, the, mm. it, it's a bit like when you, you're doing a deal. The first time you do a deal at 30K a, a, a ACV, you know, that's a big deal. Then the first time you do one at a quarter of a million, that, that's a big deal. The next time you do a deal and suddenly it's a two, three million ACV, mm. again, that's a big deal until you get onto some of the other companies that I work for where, you know, you're doing deals in the hundreds of millions. And, and it all brings it back into sort of focus and you suddenly, it gets less scary as you go on. But the first time you do it, of course, it's scary. Yeah. Did you say the third one was panic? You, did, did I hear yeah. that right? Yeah. So where you, you're, you're so beyond your comfort zone. Yeah. Uh, that you're not being stretched, you really have no idea what to do. You don't know what to do and you don't know how to do it. Yeah. And you're, you're, you just, just don't know where to start. And, and that's kind of, that's, that's less good because what it tends to do is it, it'll actually can be regressive in terms of the psychology of it. Understood. Um, so that's resort manager then, but where did sales come in? So as I said, I mean, when I was at um, NatWest, I was doing sales there anyway. Oh, I beg your pardon. Sorry, I missed yeah. that. Sorry. I, I, no, no. Uh, yeah, sorry. I'd, I'd done sales and marketing and um, was uh, effectively the first things I sold were things like life insurance and pensions. Got so, it. you know, very classic sort of, um, you know, at the time, Rolodex, pick up the phone, yeah. go through the phone book, do your own demand generation kind of thing. I mean, okay. you know, we're talking early 90s at that point. Yeah. So, so let, let me ask that question again, as if I had actually heard it the first time. When did you go from financial sales to SaaS? So that was when I then um, stopped doing the uh, ski seasons, which again, uh, it's funny, but actually a lot of what you do in skiing seasons, particularly where you're selling a lot of um, uh, additional items, you know, a lot of the revenue comes from extraneous sales. So, you know, add on for want of better right. terms. So you're still selling. Um, and also providing then the equivalent of what would be in CS, so, you know, customer success uh, in terms of how you do the service delivery and those kind of things. So there are so many parallels. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, it suddenly gets to a point where you realise you're the oldest kid on the hill uh, and uh, you, you also want to pursue some other interests in life, you know, uh, where you, you, you want to get back into the real world, for want of a better term. And that's what happened to me. I sort of decided I was going to come back um, to London um, after having been abroad pretty much constantly for eight years. Um, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to, to get back into a routine. And that was quite difficult, actually, because uh, when you're interviewing uh, for a role, a lot of people go, don't see past what you've been doing. Mm. Uh, and they're like, oh, so, so great, fantastic. You're in a ski resort. So what, what, what was it like, you know? And all enthusiastic, but, but hang on a minute, I was running, I was GM for an organization doing that, you know, running a, mm. a budget yes. that was in sort of 10, 15 million mm. and had like 30, 40 employees. Yeah, yeah, but tell me about the skiing, you know, and, and people find it difficult to make that connection with actually it's it's still resources you're managing, it's still people that you're managing, you're still managing a P&L, you're still managing... A revenue number it's just a different context yeah that's an interesting one i'd like to just spend a moment on before we talk about your leadership journey um mm. because I, I i noticed it with people who've been outside the workforce for quite a while and typically that may be say uh, a, a mother who takes a year mm -hmm. or so out or maybe even longer i see with my own wife um that people seem to think okay you you're missing experience for that time 
that all of the things, all of the skills that you're honing uh, for suddenly don't seem to count, that seem, people seem to struggle to make that translation between mm -hmm. the skills that are very, very uh, transferable mm -hmm. because they weren't in a given context. I had this myself as a pre-sales. I remember I wanted to get into sales and my manager said, uh, well, first you have to be excellent at pre-sales. And it just kind of the technology side of things didn't really interest me. So I was never going to excel at that, but th that discussion was never had. It's like, and, 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 and we also make, I think, the, which probably is a nice segue into leadership, the, the, the flip side of that is that if we, somebody is excellent in one field, like sales, they'll automatically make a great sales manager. And again, despite the fact that so often people go, no, that's not the case. We continue to do this. And I'm just, you know, there, there are two sides of the same coin, I guess. Yeah. One, where we don't transfer skills, we just assume that they're gone. And two, where we, we assume that you have to have something in a different field. Are we crazy or what? I mean, what's the, what's the psychology behind that? I, I think that it's one of these things that we, it's a fear of the unknown. And it goes back to this comfort stretch and panic um, sort of idea that I put on the table about five minutes ago. You know, as a hiring manager, if I stay within my comfort zone, and, you know, I want somebody who's done exactly the same thing as what I'm trying to do right now. And it's it's a sure bet. And that might be, you know, the, the logic for some people. And that works fine. Uh, in other instances, it might be actually that there's no real um, uh, entrepreneurial spirit there. And it's just somebody who's just cookie cutter trying to do the same thing. And it may work in some contexts, not contexts, not in others. And what I've tended to find is that actually I, I, I like to bring in people that have done things that are different because actually if, if everybody, uh, I, th I think one of the, the biggest mistakes that a leader can make is you hire people that are exactly like you. Mm. And that, that then for me is a lack of diversity in the team. Um, it, and it, and it's, it also means that if everybody's thinking the same way or has a similar sort of lens then you end up with groupthink. And that, that again, is not healthy for an organisation. I mean, I actively want to be challenged. You know, if, if, I've, if I've got a point of view, it may or may not be right. I'm quite happy to be challenged on it. But equally, if somebody else has got a point of view, then they can expect to be challenged by me. Because the whole point is, I think that leads you to better outcomes, ultimately. And that's what we all want, right? Um, if, if we all do the same thing in the same way, then what's your point of differentiation? There is none. For sure. What was your own transition like from individual contributor to leading a team in terms of what you discovered about yourself, in terms of new strengths that you discovered, but also maybe areas that, that you hadn't explored before that needed to be bolstered? Actually, it's, it's interesting. It was more because there's always been that sort of synergy. I've always been in a position where I've had man management responsibilities. Um, you know, I've always been a line manager. Um, even from the time when I was, you know, running a, a ski resort, you know, you have people working with you in those sort of circumstances to, you know, when I was sailing, I used to run, um, uh, I remember there was a place, Club Altonel, I had uh, about 18, 19 sailing instructors reporting into me because I was running the, the, the show there and that was in Turkey. And, you know, you still got responsibility for people and it, with that, the KPIs that go with them. And it may sound weird, but you know, sailing, what's, what's that got to do with KPIs? Well, actually, safety becomes a, a big KPI that you have, you know, and it, it, it's just the different context again. So I, I think that there's always 
um, been for me, certainly, that whole you're doing and you're, you're playing and you're managing at the same time. Uh, and that was interesting because when I came back to then the UK, it, it took a while to get back into real life because, again, people were not generous with sort of saying, well, actually, we'll give you a go until actually I started working for a company called um, Digital Impact, which it was a, a, a marketing agency. So I went back in the marketing track, not on the sales track. But that, again, I, I seem to have a thing about two weeks because that lasted for about two weeks until we got bought by Axiom. So having joined Digital Impact in a marketing capacity as an account director in what would have been a traditional digital agency, um, got bought by Axiom, big technology company, and suddenly we're in technology. And, and that's how my journey started. And even as an account director, an account director in an agency is, is an interesting role because on the one hand, you're selling to the client, but you're also managing a team simultaneously. Mm. So you, you're doing both of those things. Um, and, and it was a perfect role for me because it was managing both the sales and the marketing side of things and the marketing strategy. And, and my career since then, I've always been then in tech, which is well, with one or two exceptions, but generally it's been around the MarTech stack and then, um, you know, being either an individual contributor or leading a team. Um, so, f and I have to say, I actually prefer the leadership role to being an IC. Um, I, I always have done a thing and uh, it's, it, it, I find it's a lot of fun to do that and, and, and have the opportunity to hopefully inspire people, you know, give them the, the tools. And it goes back to a lot of the coaching stuff that I've done for both the skiing and sailing. I just absolutely love it. And, mm. and it gives me the opportunity to do with it, but in a professional context. Who inspires you? That's an interesting one. I, I, I look at, at two different aspects. One is from a business aspect and the other one's from a, a sports aspect. And for me, I mean, the people that really inspire me, uh, Sir Ben Ainsley. You know, it's this determination to never give up and always be striving for the best. And if you look at what he's done in terms of his solo career from, you know, initially in the laser class, then the fin class, you know, the most successful Olympian we've ever produced. And it's in a discipline like sailing. And, it, and you know, people are sort of like, yeah, but it's sailing. You know, if you're into it, you're into it and you really look at it. Hugely technical hugely technical and then if you look at what he's gone on to do then with both the america's cup and now with sail gp um you know it's bringing a team together where you're you're the team boss you you've got to look at the manufacturing side of it you've got to look at the um the whole crew how you bring and gel people together to perform at the highest levels mm -hmm. and i love stuff like that and I, and I and that i find really inspirational um you know, uh, and, and uh, then you look at other true leaders. Um, there was an interview actually this morning with uh, um, Klitschko uh, on the Today programme on Radio 4. And, you know, that for me is leadership. Currently what's going on in Ukraine and the way that they're leading there, that's just unbelievable. Yeah. The hardship that they're going through and just the amazing resilience, again, which has been that theme. Yeah. And then the leadership leading by example and just the passion that they have for... Um, you know, the, the beliefs and everything. And I think that's that, those are central tenets. So I, I look at those kind of things and then political figures occasionally, they inspire as well. But, um, you know, it, it's it's those kind of things that I look for. Going back to Ben for a second, mm -hmm. is his, his accomplishments or how he executes leadership that attracts you most? It's both. Yeah, and it's absolutely both. Because, it, you know, it's 
it's this whole lead by example. Mm. He's been there, he's seen it, he's done it. Now he's giving other people the opportunity to, to go with him on that journey. And that's the whole point is going with people on a journey. You know, the, one of the worst things is, is where you, you have, I think, leaders that are saying, you know, I'm, I'm sat here, I expect you to go and do NX, X and Y and Z, but I'm not prepared to be there with you. Mm. And, and this is the whole point. I, there's nothing I love more than going on, you know, sales calls with some of the guys in the team, even though they might be a couple of levels removed. That, that's not the point. The point is, it's just being there and in the moment and actually sitting with them and then talking about, you know, how do we strategize on a particular deal? That excites me and it's what I get really passionate about. Um, but then again, there's also the how do we bring the entire team and lift them? And I think they're, they're hugely important things. If you weren't doing what you're doing currently, what would you do? And I, I want to kind of remove the, 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 the corporate commercial Mm -hmm. options if you like take those off yeah. the table for a moment so it can't be just with your nearest competitor answer but something else that that you have a passion for that you think you'd be able to not you'd be able to do but that you you derive that satisfaction from like you clearly do with what you're doing currently yeah uh, and, and it wouldn't be with a competitor either i can tell you that now what it would be i'd be back on a boat okay that would absolutely yeah. no 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 question if if it yeah. was do what you want to and and the money was there as well, it would be back on a boat. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the best things you ever get is a feeling when you see somebody doing something that they haven't done before and you, you've been able to inspire them to do it. And, and you know, um, first time you see somebody say, uh, and the only reason I'm saying sailing is because, like I say, my knees wouldn't take the skiing now. But, you know, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's that context. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, way, the way you said that, sorry, it was, uh, Louis, was that back on a boat, what you didn't say was leading a team, but I think you, you had that in your answer. It's not back on a boat doing a, a solo trip across the Atlantic, or, no. or maybe, no. It's no, 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 it, 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 it'd be back on a boat, actually, not even leading a team, back on a boat teaching, okay. teaching and coaching. Right. Okay. That, that's what gives me the most satisfaction. And it's no different in a leadership role. I think the role of a leader is to create other leaders. That, yeah. that's, that's what you need to do, right? And, and it's only through the coaching the mentoring, the teaching, the showing, and and hopefully, you know, the, the, uh, and there is a big difference between teaching and coaching, right? And it's it's where you have the opportunity to sit with somebody and help them reflect mm. on what they've been doing and what they could have done better and them, them finding their own answers. I think that's that's hugely rewarding when they, when the you know, the penny drops and suddenly it's like, oh yeah, I could have done this or that's great or they remember something. So we're doing that at the moment, currently at Uber or we're, we're just taking the entire team through um, MedPick Masterclass with Andy White. Um, mm. And it, it's been brilliant. They, they, they've been following the curriculum. We, we keep on doing, you know, um, deal clinics, deal review clinics where we're changing the nomenclature. So, we, we, you know, we all have a common language and a common understanding. And actually just the way that we're, um, you know, focused now as a team, it's great because it, it's helping people go in the same direction, but with their own individual spins on things. Because going back to what I was saying about the diversity uh, of thinking and, and the ideas, that that's, uh, you know, the strategy side of things and how you can develop a creative idea to get to where you need to get to. And it's no different in, in something like sailing where, you know, you, you want to inspire people to be able to, you know, learn the set routines, but equally have their own thinking about where am I going to sail on the course? What am I going to do? How am I going to trim that sail? Where do I want to get to? Was there anything in your growing up that 
would have pointed to the fact that, yeah, when you're older, this is what you wanted to do? Not a chance. <laughs> it was, it's, it's been, um, it's been a series of fortunate uh, happenstances and coincidences. Mm. But I think it's one of these things, you know, when something presents itself to you, you always have a choice. Um, there's there's another old adage where people go, you know, uh, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah. And, you know, you do make your own luck. So something presents itself to you and it's, mm. what are you going to do about it? Mm. Are you going to grab the bull by the horns or are you going to choose not to? Yeah. And everything's a choice. Yeah. But you mentioned you were in a management positions uh, at a young age. Mm. Are, are you eldest child, only child by any chance? Eldest. Ah, okay. Um, there might be something there in that. I don't know if you know. I, by the way, I'm. Okay, I, 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 I read a book. <laughs> I've done more than one, but uh, it was uh, a book on. It's called Birth Order. It was fascinating insight into okay. how where we come in our family impacts our personalities. Not so much style, but yeah, how the world perceives us. And and I I was fascinated because at the time my eldest was maybe eight years of age, and our second then came along when he was eight, say, then Alex was four, and then there was a baby. So what would happen is, with your first child is, child cries, child is up early in the morning, you get up. When the second one comes along and there's a, an older child, <laughs> hey, <laughs> Louis, will you look after your younger brother or sister? Yeah. Right? And, or when the kids, the younger child is out, younger sibling is out on the street playing, the older one is typically asked to keep an eye on them, look after them. And they take that on, that, that leadership mantle on. Mm. And it's, it's very subtle, but I do think very often. I, I, what, what struck me was interesting in the book was that the, the guy, you know, he used many examples, but one of them that struck with me was um, the Apollo missions. Mm. Uh, something like that, let's say there was, I had the number slightly wrong, it was 25 astronauts, 24 of them were eldest children. And the 25th oh, really? was an, 25th was an only child, yeah. And you see that a lot of the, yeah. uh, again, it's an American book, so they're using a lot of American examples. Yeah. But a lot of American presidents, eldest child. Uh, a lot of actors, youngest child, because they get the attention and uh, they okay. like to play up and act up where the oldest child, yeah, parents and parents make a lot of their, I don't want to say mistakes, right? That's that's over. But like <laughs> when our eldest child came home from hospital, our first child, I should say, at the yeah. time, uh, came home from hospital, we were there with a manual open on how to bath him. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I'm there with my elbow. My wife is reading it out, you know, put your elbow, dip it in the water. Yeah. And, 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 you're, and I think that's reflected often in, in the resilience that and the, I've got to say the leadership, t taking re responsibility on. Yeah, and it's taking responsibility. I think that's yeah. that's 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 the the observation I would make. And uh, you know, hey, yeah. you know, I, uh, literally, I think the first time I was a, a people manager, I was probably twenty three years old. Mm. You know, and yeah. was already managing folks, and I, it's it's kind of been the way. Does it mean I always get it right? No, but yeah. it, it, I think it's one of these things. It just sets you up for uh, actually. It, it it is very much my comfort zone I don't, I, don't, I don't mind doing it um yeah and i actually get a lot from it because i think it it needs to be a, about a two-way street what do you get from it as well as what can you give mm. and i think this is this is another thing that i think is really important as you develop as a in your career is the bit is having the ability to pay it forward mm. you know people have given me a leg up 
right? I can think of certain leaders I've worked with where, you know, they've given me the opportunity. They've let me take on a responsibility. And I think then as a leader now, I owe it to them to pay it forward with other people. And we've got some great guys coming up the ranks in, 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 in our team now. And it's, it's my responsibility to ensure they have the opportunity to really realize their potential. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you, but I, I, I think I know the answer. I was going to ask you what motivates you most about that. Is, is it just seeing the lights go on, the aha moments, the growth, the, the results? Yeah. Is it, is it the ripple effect that you take what you've learned, your experience, and now you're seeing that ripple out, the network yeah. effect of that? Yeah. Hey, look, I mean, uh, there, there are colleagues that I've worked with in the past, people that I've mentored. Um, I remember from my time at um, SAS, Mm. Um, there are a couple of great colleagues that I mentored there and they've gone on to do amazing things. Um, interestingly, two of them are now at SAP and they, they're just having a phenomenal time over there. But we still talk quite regularly, you know, get some really great feedback about how they're doing. And we're, we're still really good buddies. Mm. Uh, but that, again, that stems from, you know, having taken the time and trouble to sit with them and, and spend time coaching them. And, and they're, they're doing great things now. It, it, it's, it's brilliant. But that, that's not unusual in my career. You know, I've, I've been very fortunate to meet people that have wanted to grasp um, the, the, the olive branch and wanted to say, yes, take, take me on that journey with you. Show me how to, how to do these things and have gone on to great things. And, and that, I think, is, again, a huge accolade. Um, and, and I'm very humbled by it because... Mm. You should see these guys doing really, really well, and it's it's fantastic. Uh, you know, it was the same at um, Basware. Uh, some some great ladies that were working for me there. Um, you know, they've gone had the opportunity to really spend time with them and and give them those opportunities, and they, they've gone on to do brilliant things. So you know, it's 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 again about the ability to pay things forward. What's your own personal definition of success? Um. It's kind of interesting. Uh, I, I think for me, it is about just seeing other people, you know, really benefit from the interactions they have with you. To leave, to leave it better than as you found something, if that makes sense. You know, because of a, a result of your influence, your intervention, your coaching, your... Um, uh, inputs into something people feel that actually they've grown as a result of it that mm. that's that's a successful outcome it's, it, you you've talked about kids before you know i've got a son max he's he's 15 now um you know he's funny enough he's just away on a skiing holiday at the moment with the school and for me success is seeing him actually being a a, 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 hu- a useful human being and a member of society where he can then in turn pay it forward and it's not always easy with your own, right? It, it, it's a lot more difficult. But it's and it's great because he's he's really warming to, to that. He's a fantastic skier. He loves his sailing. You know, he's doing well at school. And that, again, that for me is personal success. Mm. You, Interestingly, less to do with, you know, the the numbers and so on yes, and so forth. Yes, work that's, that's what struck me about it was that your definition of success seems to be how it's manifested through others. Absolutely. Because again, you know, and this, this is why I think I, I'm, I'm better suited to a leadership role than an IC role. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and it probably always was the case. Um, but again, 
I think there's there's a lot of truth to the fact that you know I, I personally me haven't really achieved very much in my career. I've been fortunate enough, or again goes back to the the, the how you create your own luck, to surround myself with great people, mm-hmm. and and give them the opportunities to shine in those contexts, because again what you do as an individual just generally isn't scalable, mm. and in order to achieve scale, you need to bring other people on that journey with you. If you were Minister for Education and you could make any subject mandatory on the secondary school system, what would it be and why? That's an interesting question. Um, I think if I was going to say anything, it would... something either history or economics interestingly because i think it's one of these things you you can learn a lot from the past and i think we we often forget what's happened you know everything's new and everything's great and you know innovate 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 actually we we see cycles going through the economy all the time and and i think it also teaches about things like social responsibility and and what that actually means and you look at things like you know even things like the industrial revolution and and how that fundamentally changed society we've just gone through the internet revolution we've got more coming on um you know in terms of changes the only constant there is in business but actually Mm. a lot of the things that we see uh, are things that go around and come around is how you build the resilience to say actually how how do i learn from those things in the past to, to, to change what we do um, going forward. And I think history is quite an interesting one, which is interesting because I didn't actually study it myself. I've, I've, I've had to learn that afterwards and I found it incredibly interesting. And it also, I think, talks a little bit to the reason I say economics then is because uh, I think for me, my best read of the week is The Economist, just to get a really balanced view of what's going on in the world. Um, and I find I learn quite a lot from that. And, and I think... Again, for me, every day is a school day, right? Um, a, a bad day at work is a day where I haven't learned something. Yeah. Interestingly, I see the governor in Florida has just signed a law that uh, the schools in Florida are now adding financial management mm. to their curriculum, which I think is an interesting one. And maybe it's a, a sign of things to come where we... There, there's, there's an emphasis on practical subjects that are needed for managing our life. Mm-hmm. Rather than, and I, you know, his, history is an important one because I think we get a sense of who we are from our own history. Mm-hmm. Uh, often highly curated. Uh, I, I do notice that because very often I find that people in different countries and you talk about the same topic, they have a completely different perspective on it depending on how mm-hmm. it was taught, right? But, uh, but it is, it's a really interesting topic. Um, but uh, tell me, uh, Louis, what's your greatest wish for the future? Um, just generally, I mean, right now it's, uh, the, the biggest concern that I think there is, is, is clearly around what's going on in Ukraine and what, what's happening there. So my biggest wish for the future is that, you know, that comes to a very speedy mm. and, um, uh, safe for want of a better term resolution. Um, you know, it, it's got ramifications for everybody and I, I know my heart goes out to all the people in Ukraine and that, that, that right now, and it seems, it seems a bit short term to sort of say, you know, biggest wish for the future, but actually, I think existentially, it's it's one of the biggest 
um, threats we have at the moment um, in modern life. Um, and again, talking about history, I mean, if you look at the beginning of the uh, 20th century with what happened there, um, you know, First World War and Spanish flu, again, it's repeating itself. We've just had coronavirus and now we're, we're going into a massive conflict in, in Europe. And my, my, my biggest desire for the future is that we don't keep on repeating these mistakes because it's just stupid. Are we condemned to repeat these mistakes, do you think? Just if we don't study history, possibly. Yeah, but is it not just human nature? Human nature is, you know, there's the, the, there's, there's the wonderful things about human nature. Love, uh, respect, mm -hmm. all of that good stuff. And then there's the, the, the underbelly, the, the dark, the shadow side, greed, mm -hmm. avarice, vengeance. And when things are a little bit out of kilter, that very often it can bubble up to the surface. And that mm -hmm. what we're seeing actually now, and you mentioned Ukraine as an example, you're seeing the best of both come up simultaneously. But there's something that has stirred the pot, caused this to happen. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, and, I, and, and again, I'm just positing the question about is it that, do, do we learn from history? Or, or can we even learn from history? Does human nature overpower? Because history is just in our own minds. It's, if, if you haven't mm -hmm. lived through it, and I think that's, to make the distinction between history and books that we learn, which is just mm -hmm. information. There's no emotion attached to it versus say maybe a parent, right? Who had gone through uh, a, a war situation and has, a, has mm -hmm. a different emotional memory of that. And I think, but, but, but we lose that because the next generation, yeah. you know, I see it in, in Northern Ireland, for example, I grew up during the seventies and eighties and, have it a very different emotional memory about what went on there versus say my kids do or their friends do mm -hmm. where uh, all they, they, they have no memory of the troubles whatsoever yeah and i think that's a great point and it's interesting because uh, you know just talking about context i mean my wife is from northern ireland as well so she, and she's you know of our vintage um so you know again has very very vivid mm. memories about the, the the troubles and and it goes back to when that is part of the context then you do think, why, why are we making the same mistakes? But it goes back to, I think, the whole point about choice. You know, are we doomed? No, not necessarily. We have a choice. Everybody has a choice every day about everything that we do. We choose to do things or we choose not to do things. Um, and I think the other thing then, again, that I think we've, we've moved to a lot, particularly in the West, is, is trying to make sure that, um, you know, our, our, uh, the other members of society are emotionally secure. I think that's, there's a lot to do with that. It's that emotional security um, and that feeling of inclusion. We touched on it a little bit earlier on that I think is then really important. And, it, and it's a choice. Yeah. You know, do you choose to live and let live or do you choose not to? Mm. And that, that's a choice that only every individual can make for themselves. You know, we can't yeah. legislate for it. Yeah. And it's interesting. I also think how we frame it. It's quite interesting because in Ireland, during the Second World War, it was deemed as the emergency. Uh, mm -hmm. What went on in Northern Ireland was always called the, tr the Troubles. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see it now in Ukraine from a Russian perspective. And I had this from a Russian friend of mine who contacted me recently in a text and uh, called it the operation. You know, and you're kind of going, no, 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 it's, it's not an operation, right? No. And, and it's, 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 it's all how it's framed. And how it's mm -hmm. framed is how it's understood. And 
This is why I think sometimes I think we're condemned to repeat the mistakes of the past. But that's not a great place to f- finish up a podcast on. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a downer. So we should should lift it a little bit. Tell me, um, Louis, if when your time on the planet is done uh, and there's a statue erected in your honor, what would you like? What would you like the, uh, the 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 brass plate to say? So a bit like the ancient Greeks, actually, um, he had passion. I've never had that one before. And I've asked that question a lot. I like that. Yeah. You know, passion. I think, yeah. you know, life is short. Yeah. And, and actually, I think as you, if you go through life, you, you have to have passion about things. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to be uh, passionate about stuff, yeah. That, that's how you live and that, that's yeah. what you want to be remembered for the stuff you were passionate for yeah if you're going on a desert island then louis and you could take one item with you possession personal possession and it can't be, you know you're, you're not your phone or your laptop and it can't be family member or pet what would it be it'd be my boat your boat <laughs> 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 okay i walked into that one because now you're no longer on the island though because you got a boat to get up again yeah no there we go <laughs> yeah what would you take in the boat with you um, it's interesting because the, the things that are, are most important to me are, are, are family, mm. um, you know, um, my wife, my son, and actually my two dogs, uh, that, but, but those are the things that I live for. Mm. Okay. So you basically, you're saying, look, there, there's, there's nothing that you have that couldn't be replaced other than your, 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 your family, obviously, and your, your two dogs. Very good. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's. It goes back to what you were saying uh, a, a minute ago. It's like you know what's important. You talked about love. You talked about um, you talked about the things that make us human. Mm. And actually, ev- everything else is is kind of trinkets. Mm. Um, but um, I remember we were, we were on holiday one time, and we we saw this uh, in in the room we were staying in. They had this um, placard that was above the bed, and it said, "Collect moments, not things." And I think that's yes. very true. And you know everything that we we do in life it's it's a series of collections of memories and this goes back to the, the uh, and this is why i sort of think i say history because uh, i'm not trying to be nostalgic by it but actually everything that i do now is based on a sum of everything uh, of all the things that i've done in the past that that that's all it is my experiences uh my knowledge things I've learned, situations I've been in, how do I then apply that to the situations I'm coming into now? And it goes back to, you know, there are only so many storylines that there are. And it's the same in deals, right? We, we talk, we, you know, if I bring it back to sales, which is what this is really about, um, you know, you get an objection in a deal, chances are you've had the same objection in 20 other deals before. If you're not ready for it, then, you know, yeah. that's on you, not on anybody else. Final question, most treasured memory? Most treasured memory. Mm. Um, that's an interesting one because I've I think I've got quite a few. That mo- most of them are to do with either my family or skiing or sailing, but it would be something along those lines. So you know, uh, I remember a day very very vividly in uh, Courchevel, um, coming off um, coming off um, a mountain, and we were the first people down on it. And getting the first tracks, uh, it was a beautiful day, fresh powder. That's something that's going to live with me forever, you know. Uh, remembering those kind of things again. Um, sailing uh, f- first, uh, well, actually, this was um, 
in Turkey one time and just had the most perfect conditions and on a laser, just get the boat planing and was planing for hours. And it was absolutely amazing day. So, and it was, you know, proper windy. But then the birth of my son, you know, everybody says that. Actually, it was quite traumatic for us because he was very prem. But actually, it was just, you know, amazing that he actually came through it. And there's things like that that you you, you just remember. And, and it's always the personal stuff, funnily enough, that, that I think is the most prominent. And, you know, the thing I'm I'm most grateful for, uh, again, it's, it's just sort of friends and family uh, and, and having really good people around me. That's a perfect place to leave it. Louis, thank you so much for being my guest today. Paul, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it.